Good morning. I noticed when you came in this morning, you said to yourself, where in the world am I going to sit? We keep changing things around, you know. You, you never, you finally get things established. This is your territory. This is my seat. And then we mess it all up for you. You know, it's, it's kind of like that with God. He keeps changing things, you know. Just doesn't let anything just sit and stay the same. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people. I kind of like things to stay the same. I just like steady, but God's not like that. So I have to learn to adapt and go with the flow and do what, have, do what we have to do. Um, we're, we're looking at the book of Psalms this morning. Psalm 73 is where we are. So if you brought your Bible, you might want to turn to that. And by the way, I want to uh, appreciate... Uh, Pastor Adam, for the message he did last week. We're going to see some of the same patterns follow along with this one, uh, even though we're going a different direction in a different psalm. Uh, but, but he did a great job. And, and maybe he's not in here, so I'll just say to you that I think he's done a really good job with managing things at the church. He's, uh, he's the executive pastor, so he executes. So he done a lot of things, uh, changed a lot of things that is, I think brought us to where we need to be. And he's worked with uh, Pastor Todd and Pastor David, and th- those three have just done a phenomenal job of bringing our church through this COVID thing and out on the other side. And I'm just really pleased to be working with those guys. Psalm uh, 73. This is the first psalm in book three of the Psalms. If you didn't hear this introduction, the Psalms is a collection of five different books that have been put together. We call them the book of Psalms, but probably in your Bible, uh, just before Psalm 73, you'll see a division. It'll say book three. Um, it's, it's, a con- it's a continuing tension between lament and praise. Lament is, how long, oh, oh God, are you going to put up with this? When are you finally going to step in and bring some change? And then the praise is, we thank you, God, because you're the one who stepped in and brought the change. So we're going to see that tension again in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 isn't written by David. It's written by Asaph. Asaph is the next generation. And so Asaph is struggling with some of the same things that David had to struggle with earlier. And that got me thinking. You know, we all, every generation has to struggle with faith. You know, our, my parents may have had faith, but I had to discover it on my own. I may have faith, but my kids have to discover it on their own. They may have faith, but my grandkids have to discover it on my own. And so Asaph is struggling with, with some things here that maybe you are struggling with. It's the first of 11 consecutive psalms by Asaph, and each of them has to do with some crisis. Maybe you're in a crisis in your life right now. Maybe you're not in a crisis right now, but you know what it is to be in a crisis. Maybe you need to fasten your safety belt because the crisis is yet coming. But I want us to see how he, how he addresses this in Psalm 73. It's 28 verses, so it's too long to really uh, unpack the whole thing. But I want to kind of be a teacher this morning and kind of give us a concept that's being considered here. Uh, <clears throat> it's 28 verses equally divided right down the middle. The first half is his lament. 
This is my struggle. This is my crisis. This is what I'm dealing with. I'm going to call it the godly man's trial. Right in the middle, at verse 15, he changes gears and he talks about the godly man's truth. It's like I once was uh, lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. It's like the conversion story that all of us Christians have to eventually have in our life as we, we grow and progress. So, verse 1 starts the whole thing out. It lays a precedent. Surely God is good in Israel to those who are pure in heart. See, he's not really saying anything new. He's saying, this is, this is my scripture text for what I'm going to say in Psalm 73. It's a basic principle that's been established ever since God made a covenant with Abraham that God is good. It's still a principle that we practice today in Christianity. It's a principle that God is good. It doesn't make any difference what happens in the world or what it looks like. God is good in his very nature, and he's working to bring something good out in our lives. Surely God is good to Israel, to Christians, to those who are pure in heart. Do you believe that? Yes. Do you believe it enough to pass the test Come on. when the test comes? Because verse 2 says, but as for me, he's making it personal. I am reflecting on that basic principle that God is good to Israel, to everyone that has a pure heart. But as for me, this is my personal take on it. This is my personal reflection. This is what I believe about that. This is what I have seen. And this is, what, this is the struggle every one of us in this room have to go through. I know what the Bible says, but does it really work? But as for me, he says, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. I know what the Bible says. I know what the truth is. But as for me, personally, I look at the world around me and I don't see that. That's what he's saying. I don't see that. I almost slipped. Slippery, you know, slip is when you lose your grip. It's when you're trying to, to move or stand firm and you're slipping around. And he's saying, my faith is slipping here. And then he goes into this progression of verses that talk about what caused him trouble, what gave him a problem. Here's the first one. It's in verse 3. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Have you ever felt that? You're a godly person. You're doing your best to discipline yourself, to live a life of holiness, to do things God's way. But you look out around you, and you see people who are evil, people who don't know anything about God, don't care anything about God. They're ungodly, and they're blessed. They have all kinds of blessing. Things are just going great for them. Have you ever seen that? Does that make you struggle? This is what Ace's struggle is. His, he's got a problem with prosperity when he looks out in the world you know, we, uh, we, we Christians, I, I hear this a lot, we have this idea that when God's favor is on our life, 
we will be blessed financially. We will have so much. God will just prosper us. He'll just pour out all kinds of blessing. But the fact of the matter is, ungodly people sometimes have the same blessing. That causes us to struggle. That causes us to question our faith. Verse 4, he goes on with his next complaint. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. How many of you know some Christian that's got some health ailment going on that we need to pray for? Happens all the time. We Christians, when we have health issues... We come, confess them, say, will you pray for me? I need God's intervention in my life. I need God to touch me. I need God to heal me. We Christians do that. The world doesn't do that. You ask them, how are you doing? It doesn't make any difference how they're doing. They're going to say, just great, just fine. How many know what I'm talking about? Some of us Christians do the same thing. Maybe that's a good thing because you don't want to tell everybody all the problems you got. But we all have problems. We all have struggles. Some of us it's financial. Some of us with relationships. Some of us it's health issues. We all struggle. Every human being, Christian or non-Christian, we struggle with these things living in this world. And Asaph is struggling with this because when he sees non-Christians, they seem to be painless. That's the second issue. It's his problem with painlessness. We Christians, we're told we're supposed to persevere. We're told that we're supposed to press on. We're supposed to hang on to our faith. We're supposed to keep our eyes on the goal. We talk positive to each other. Why do we do that? Because we know we're tempted to stumble and fail. Here's his third problem in verse 5. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. It looks like these ungodly people have all kinds of blessings. I mean, they got great big houses. They have all kinds of boats and tools and all kinds of accessories in life. And us Christians, we're expected to give 10% of our income away. How are we going to keep up? It causes us to struggle. It causes us to question things. I'm glad Asaph wrote this down because it's making us deal with some things we don't really want to deal with, our own attitudes. So they have seemed to have a life of peace. When us Christians, we got all kinds of turmoil. Why is that? It just doesn't seem right. Where is the goodness of God? They have a problem with peacefulness. Ungodly people have peacefulness in their life. And us Christians kind of torn up inside. We got spiritual battles going on. He's got a problem. He's expressing his problem. <clears throat> Here's the fourth one. And I'm only going to share one more of the negative, and then we're going to get to the positive. The negative, okay? It's this problem with pride. Verse 6 says, Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. And violence doesn't mean they go around striking people. It means they take advantage of people. They take advantage of people around them. They get ahead at everybody else's expense. The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. That kind of uh, <clears throat> philosophy is what he's dealing with. It's a problem with pride. I see them walk around with their nose up in the air thinking they, they have it all together. While well, us Christians know that the Bible tells us we're supposed to stay humble. Yes. So we're supposed to do it one way. They do it the other way. They seem to get 
richer and richer and more and more blessed, and the Christian just seems to stay where they are. Asaph says, when I see this, it creates a problem for me. It's not just Asaph in Psalm 73 who comes up with this problem. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 15 says, In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. See, Ecclesiastes sees the same thing. Job says it in chapter 4 verses 7 and 8. He says, Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. So Asaph's in a faith crisis. And all of us, if we'll admit it, from time to time in our life, we're in a faith crisis. We go through growth spurts, and usually the growth comes right after a crisis in our life. So right here we're at chapter, we're going to move on to chapter 15, or I'm sorry, verse 15 now, because that's the turning point. This is the turning point. Listen how it words it in verses 15, 16, and 17. I had, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until... I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. When I entered the sanctuary of God, this awareness came over me. When I was in the presence of God, I became aware of what their final destiny is. I'm sitting around looking at all their blessings, and I'm looking at all their pride, and I'm looking at all the wealth that they seem to have, and I suddenly realized what their end's going to be. Because they have it all stored up today in this lifetime right now. And when this lifetime right now comes to an end, they lose it all. His eyes were opened when he got to God's house. Uh, I remember a couple years ago we had a pastor from Africa here. Mawusi, that's what his name was. Pastor Mawusi. Uh, he's from uh, Togo, I believe. And we went out to eat after he was here and he shared, went out to eat with him. And, uh, and I asked him, what word would he have for the church in America? I didn't know. He Togo is a poor country. They don't have much wealth. All their churches are meeting in huts someplace. So quite frankly, this was just a conversational question. What would you have to say for the church in America? Because quite frankly, I thought, he don't have anything to say. But I want to hear what he says. And he said to me something that was amazing. I'll never forget it. He said, the peop- he said I've been to churches in America where people sit while they're singing. He says, don't people, don't Christians in America understand that when they stand and sing praises to God, the enemy has to flee. 
And when people come into those churches plagued by demonic oppression and the people around them are singing out with excitement to God, the demons have to flee. Don't they realize that people are set, can be set free when we sing praises to God? And I thought, oh my goodness. How many times have we thought that we're here in God's house and we are singing songs of praise and we're doing spiritual warfare and the demons have to flee? I don't think I've ever thought about that before. I mean, I wouldn't say that's wrong. I believe that. But I never processed it. I never realized things happen in the spirit on a Sunday morning in both our Sunday morning services. And that kind of challenged me to the kind of worship I do, how I praise God, how I address God. I can't just sing like I'm at a funeral. I mean, I got to get into it. I've got to exercise my faith as I'm singing to God. So the sanctuary should be a place of peace and protection, a place where the enemy can't dwell, a place where the enemy's got to flee. Verse 18, he says, surely you place them on slippery ground. See, I started, we, he started out by saying, I, my faith was on slippery ground. And then I realized they're the ones on slippery ground. They're the ones who have lost their, their, losing their grip. They're the ones who are about to fall. Then I understood that. Verses 19 and 20. He says, how suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. The King, King James Version says that as a dream when one awakes, So, Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. You know, a a dream gives us some hope, but a fantasy is just like a cloud. It's empty. It's nothing. You wake up, and it's all over. But hopefully, when we wake up in a dream, it's given us some direction. It's given us some hope. That's the, the difference there. So, basically, he says, I have to... I realized I need to look at their, the ungodly, unworldly people. I need to, or the worldly people. I need to look at them from the perspective of their destiny. Where are they going to spend eternity? And this is where all of us need to get a grip in our own life. That there is an eternity ahead of us. And what we do in this lifetime establishes our destiny for the future. So he had forgotten some things. He realizes he had forgotten some things. Let me share with you four things that he had forgotten. Here's the first thing. He forgot God's favor. In verses 23 and the first half of verse 24, he says, Yes, yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. God's favor is upon Asaph. He needs to remind himself of that. I need to remind myself of that. You need to remind yourself of that. If you are a child of God and the Spirit of God lives inside of you, he directs our step. He guides us. He protects us. He watches over us. His favor is upon us. 
Even when some person does something evil to us, his favor is still upon us. We need to remind ourselves of that. We need to build our faith up because this world will drain our faith. So he, he, he had forgotten God's favor. The last half of verse 24 says, And afterward you will take me into glory. He forgot his future. God, help us not to forget our future. Things get bleak down here sometimes. Things get hard down here on this earth sometimes. But don't ever forget your future. When you breathe your last down here, whether it's at age 89 or 69 or 39, whenever it is that God decides to call you home, remember what your home is. Remember what your future is. Focus on your future. Don't focus on your today. Verse 25, here's the third thing he forgot. Verse 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. He forgot he had a father. God is not just the supreme being, this, this creator. He's not just that. He is a father. A father is in relationship with his children. We have a Father God who's in relationship with us. Don't ever forget that, church. If he's in relationship with you, why wouldn't he want to communicate with you? So we need to put ourselves in a place where we can hear him communicate what what he wants to say to us. It's relationship. He's our Father. And fathers don't want to hurt their kids. Fathers want to help their kids. And he is my heavenly father. Yes. And he's not an absent father. Right. We're the wayward sons and daughters. Yep. He's there waiting for us. Amen. Here's the four things in verses 26, 27, and 28. He says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, I love that phrase. Everybody say it with me. But oh God. God. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, there it is again, personal reflection. This is my take on all this. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Three things out of that paragraph I want to draw our attention to. The first is the but God. That phrase but God is found again and again and again in the Bible because there's this tension between life and death, the now and the future. There's tension all through the Bible, good and evil. And the but God is when we finally let God step into the picture. The but God. The second thing I want us to see is the, but as for me, he starts out by saying, surely God is good to Israel, to those that are pure in heart. Surely that's true. But as for me, I have my doubts until he gets to God's house and he has an encounter with God and God shows him that he's real and that he cares about him. And when God shows him and cares about him, now he's, he's got a whole 
but as for me perspective. God has turned him around. He sees things from a whole new perspective. And he'll do that. He'll show that with with each of us as well. And the third thing, remember that principle that was presented in verse 1, but God is good to Israel? He says, it is good to be near you. First, the first half of Psalm 73, he's questioning the validity of such a statement that God is good to the pure in heart. By the time he gets to the end, he says, but as for me, I've discovered it's just good. It's good to be with you. It's good to be with God. It's good to be in his presence. I got the same troubles everybody else has. I got the same difficulties everybody else has. have the same doubts everybody else has. But I'm going to hang on to my faith. As for me, I'm going to hang on to my faith. And it is good to be with God. Let me, I'm going to close this out by reading a scripture in the New Testament says basically the same thing. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 16. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The fourth thing he forgot is he forgot this is a walk of faith. It's a walk of faith we have to have. We don't walk by what we see. We walk by what we don't see based on faith of what, what, how God sees us. So, as for you, what's next? What's your take on this? Asaph says, as for me, and he told us his struggle. And then he says, but as for me, and he told us his conclusion. So, let's take it home. As for you, how does the as for me fit for you? Where are you on this faith journey? Where are you on this faith walk? And I want to encourage you to think about that very thing. Do you believe what you say you believe? Can you practice what you say you believe? Because I believe that God has his hand on me. I believe he has his hand on you. Every one of you, if you've given your life to Christ, he has his hand on you. He's not going to let you do what's going to harm you. He's going to, it's like a, it's like a loving father who has a little child that wants to go play in the street. You're a loving father. What are you going to do? You're going to let your child play in the street? How are you going to stop him from playing in the street? Maybe you need to apply some discipline because you have to keep them out of the street. They're, they're going to get hurt out there. We have a loving God that will reach out, grab us by the nap of the neck, and pull us in. He will compel us to come into the family of God because he loves us. doesn't want to see us get hurt. 
So what are you going to do with all that? What I want to encourage you to do is come back to God one more time. Recommit your life one more time. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we want to come back to you one more time. This is important because it has to do with our destiny, with our future ahead. So I just want to pray, God, right now that you would move in the hearts of every man, every woman, every boy, every girl in this room right now. Bring us to a place of letting our faith rise up. Help us to not look at the world. Help us to look at you. Help us to get our eyes off the world around us and other people. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and what you say. And what you say is the way we can uh, be victorious in our lives. So bring us that breakthrough. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.